Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Archana, the CTO at Workday, and we discuss the evolution of the CTO role, specific steps to advance your career, and why skills are becoming the new currency in the workplace. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Hello. Hello. How are you? Amazing. Can you hear me all right? Yes. Perfect. Zoom is working. That's exciting. I know. Second time's the charm. <laughs> How's your day going today? It's been good so far. Um, I was basically telling Jake the last time I, I had the conversation, I had to like redo my entire computer before I got <laughs> on this call. So all's good. I'm glad it worked out though, because you're incredibly smart. You have a lot of great things to say. And when we have high like audio quality, it just makes it all that much better as far as like people listening. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm excited to be here. Yeah. I was actually doing your prep and I saw that you were studying at Duke, like uh, nerve stimulators. <laughs> I didn't work on nerve stimulators. I actually worked on microelectromechanical systems. So MEM simulators. So Mostly to do with uh, VLSI design as well as, um, you know, more geeky chip manufacturing and fabrication stuff. So what was it for? So you're building these chips to, for like to be, for some reason, I thought like that they were being integrated into people somehow. Not really. So we, there were, there were a few things that were going on with respect to research. So you could kind of say that because we were also looking at drug delivery systems and oh, these cool. chips would be part of those drug delivery systems. Um, we were also using some of the technology to build and fabricate certain chips that would then go into medical devices. So there was a there was a little bit of this, but I wouldn't say that that was the whole purpose. We're not we're not injecting chips yet at this point. <laughs> so what was like your what was like the main thing that you worked on that you thought was really exciting in college? Uh, I would say a couple of things. So, so to back up a little bit, one of the things that I, I've always been excited about is um, electronics and technology, which is what led me to start working on electronics and communication engineering as part of my bachelor's. And then when I moved to the US, um, I did my master's in electrical engineering. So I would say my undergrad, thinking about robotic arms and lemon throwers and building systems and equipments like path tracers were interesting to me. And I think when I started specializing more in chips, uh, digital chips and you know analog chips were very fascinating for me. I think being able to look at a very small, tiny chip and make changes or simulate you know, how the chip would actually work um, and then fitting that as part of the larger puzzle and then seeing if it still works the same way you intended it to and a lot of times, you know, those, that was one of those jobs where you would think something would happen a certain way, but you would actually fit it into the larger puzzle and it won't. And then you go back to the drawing board and redo the whole thing. Uh, but I think that was very interesting for me, like coming up with a solution, designing something, analyzing that, seeing how that fits as part of the bigger puzzle. I think all of those were aspects that I would say even have a huge impact on what I do today, which is you know, thinking big, thinking about the bigger strategy, then breaking that down into smaller problems, analyzing those smaller problems and see how that leads us down this path of reaching that vision or that strategy that we originally set out to do. Boom. You're amazing. <laughs> yes. That, that's like, that's what drives me. I like to take difficult things. I like to break them up, solve them in pieces, and then can just continue. Like I, I'm just a big fan. And I talked to this guy, uh, Raphael Duran, and he had a documentary called The Cyborgs Among Us. Yeah. Right? Have you seen it? I haven't seen it, but I've heard oh, about it. Yeah, it is really cool. So they he takes a look at like the underground of people injecting chips and different electronics into their bodies. And then yeah. he takes a look at like the the financially viable like medical industry that's right. you know pushing forward the technology and he kind of contrasts the two and shows the difference and uh, it's just unbelievable what some of these people are doing in their houses injecting themselves with these microchips <laughs> and I was like ah oh, I bet you is it Archana or Archana 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 yeah I was like I bet you Archana is gonna like love this like because it's just so geeky and futuristic right 
it makes a lot of sense especially today because i think a lot of uh, medication is moving towards controlled release and when you're thinking about controlled release medication if you're actually able to target the area of attack within the body and have the release be done to certain organs it minimizes side effects and other parts and it also provides you with a mechanism through which you don't have to have the human sort of do that you know control that on their own but actually have technology help you know make that better oh yeah my like you sound like my thanksgiving last year so my dad's <laughs> an engineer and my stepmom and brother are both physicians okay. and they're like you know they're all geeky into their own things and they were literally he pulled out like a popular science magazine or something and he showed these like little genetically programmed scrubbers that they were like injecting into people like nanos that they were injecting into people to help them like remove plaques so they don't have heart attacks and i was like this is crazy you can like I design know. and program these things i think there's been a lot of advancement with respect to science and drug delivery and a lot of these different things i, I just my my next hope is that we we fast track the path towards getting the covid-19 vaccine so we can be out of the pandemic Right. I heard that there's like three or four vaccines in like the last phase of trials, which is yeah. pretty exciting. Yeah. All right. But Workday doesn't do health stuff, do they? No, we don't. No, we don't. <laughs> what, what does Workday do? <laughs> so we're a HR and financial software company, uh, cloud first, cloud only. And our, I would say that our goal is to basically think about the future. What's the next 10 years look like and how do we make sure that we're keeping we're getting to that elusive zero day close from a financials perspective or how are we thinking about reskilling the workforce because there is a huge change and covid's definitely accelerated the digital transformation for organizations so what does that mean for the workforce and how are we enabling both companies and employees to be best in class as they move towards the next 10 to 15 years of their life we we have a suite of applications even around the hr space speed absence or time tracking benefits calibration and performance management all of those and then on the financial space taking care of core financials or procurement anything to do with workforce planning or financial planning basically a single system that allows companies to understand their workforce and their business ecosystem so that we can basically take away the minutia of doing work and let the companies do what they're best at and how did this opportunity come up for you Uh it was very interesting. So I I was in investment banking before this. I've had a very, you know, I would say not so traditional career path. I as we talked about before, I was I was in the electrical engineering industry working on chips and working on the lower levels of the OSI uh stack I would say. And then I basically in 2008 I think uh switched over to computer science and wanted to start thinking a, a little bit more about technology and its application in the digital world so i started working for deutsche bank um they had just started an office in cary north carolina which was focused on technology and deutsche used to usually sort of outsource a lot of this but they wanted to build their own development center so i was part of the very early team that started out as a mini startup within a large organization and i worked there for about 4 years started out as a software developer moved into a little bit of a functional specialist subject subject matter expert role and after that i was moving to the west coast and it was interesting because the company was around 2000 people at that time so small enough where i could make influence and you know help change processes and work on very interesting problems and it was in the technology space and i wanted to figure out what product management was all about i think that was that was one of the things that was coming up as you know a new trend and a lot of companies were embracing product people who could think big and then break those problems down into executables and i think that's that's where my passion is so i fit right in yeah it was like this weird evolution of like you got engineers and then designers and then like product designers and product engineer and then you it like kind of all just kind of came together and at the same time i guess like the scrums and the agiles were coming out right. but but getting to watch the progression all of it uh, of like the entire thing it's been it's been incredibly incredibly fascinating what do you think is progressing right now so i was talking with derek a, a cto from trendtech and we were discussing yeah. like the evolution of the cto role like where do you think it is now I think that's a very interesting question because it's it's 
it's a hodgepodge of everything. It's pretty much like how product management was when it started out. As a CTO, you're thinking about strategy and where do you want your technology to go in the next few years? How does that actually support your customers? How does that support your technology organization? What does the architecture look like? And how do you want to evolve the architecture in such a way that it supports that growth that you want to see within the product suite and the product side? Um, there's also the thought leadership piece of how are you taking everything that you're doing within the organization, packaging it up, and conveying that story or talking to your customers or your prospects? How are you having that executive presence in terms of you know, both influencing inwards within teams and also influencing externally with respect to thought, thought leadership in the industry? And you kind of are thinking about how you can stitch together these smaller things that are happening within the organization to form that bigger story. So I think from a leadership perspective, as well as from a technology perspective, it's going to continue being an evolving role. And it also is going to depend a lot on what industry you're working on and what's the most important thing that comes up within that industry or that space. And being in HR, it's been interesting because as a CTO, you're also thinking about how does GDPR affect our product? How does CCPA affect our product? what are data residency requirements in different countries and how do they impact the development of product or hosting of the service within our space? So I think it's a very interesting role where you could basically go wherever you want with it, depending on uh, how ingrained you want to be either internally or externally. Oh, I'm so glad we got your audio high quality because you're awesome. <laughs> this is great. What, what, like, what big project are you really excited about right now? Um, I would say there are several. Um, COVID's been one of the biggest sort of, you know, curveballs that everyone's sort of facing right now, right? Um, and we were no different. We started out there, there's the employee aspect in terms of everything that we thought about and did for the employee force, and we'll talk about it maybe a little bit later. But, but from a product standpoint, that also brought up a lot of things that were important. Insurance companies were processing payrolls. We saw manufacturing companies sort of trying to understand their workforce better. Pretty much everyone across the board was thinking about data. Even the people that weren't actually data-focused or data-centric or data-driven are now thinking a lot deeply about their operations, their business, and we're seeing a change in terms of even the C-level, the CIOs, the CEOs, the CHROs are all working together a lot more than they used to before. One of the areas that I'm really excited about, I would say, is this this stage we've gotten to where everyone is more excited about data than they ever were. People want to be more cognizant of what's happening within their organization, and they're thinking about how they can utilize data to have better decision-making. But then comes the question of the way people have traditionally gone about getting information or getting data within organizations is throwing a bunch of analysts, having them stitch together information from different software systems that they have, and then stitching together reports and showing it up to their C-level executives. And a lot of times these reports are out of date because the second you export something to Excel, your data becomes stale. And there's also a lot of human error in these calculations. So you'll have the marketing department running with a completely different set of data compared to the HR department. So there's now a huge need to not only bring together all of the relevant data into a single platform to expose it, but there's also a realization across the board that companies need to move from being very gathering focused to being more insight focused, where you understand what to actually do with the data. A lot of times people might have a bunch of data in front of them, but they're like, what do I do with this? I don't know. And there's also the secondary question of how does that data that you have or information that you have compare with other people in the industry? So I think there is a huge change that we're going to see in terms of how people even think about their data strategy overall. Yeah, I like that. It, I have, you know, it's funny is, so like I had a conversation about like a year ago with uh, Yasser Anwar. He's the CTO. And I'm sorry, buddy, if I messed your name up, but <laughs> CTO of uh, a home goods company. And William Sonoma, and he had talked about this concept of like data lakes versus data swamps and intention yeah. with the data, like intention, like I, rather than just putting everything together, I have this specific outcome I want, and now I'm going to focus on right. this outcome and drive it by using these tools. 
And I was like, okay, like I'm on board with that. That's a great mindset. Adopted it into my like personal philosophy. But then like several months later, I was actually like executing on a project here at the business. And I realized that it's like feature creep. Like, you know, in product, when feature creep starts to happen, you, you sort of develop a muscle to like stop it as early as possible. So that was happening with me. Like I kept wanting to like, oh, but because what happens is you, you need this piece of data and then you start searching through different tools and then all the tools yeah. are telling you all the things you can do. And it's so easy to get distracted. It's very difficult to like stay exactly that, that focusing on the outcome parts really challenging. Yeah. And I think that's the big thing that a lot of companies think about. And sometimes they don't even know what to focus on. You might be able to come up with three things, but maybe there's a fourth and a fifth that you haven't thought about. So if tools that you're utilizing can tell you, here are the five things that we're seeing the industry focus on. And we've, we've pulled those insights together for you based on the information that we have for you within the system. And Areas like HR and financials are very important because that's how you run the company. Your people make up your company and your finances dictate how you perform. And if you're not able to get that information on what your business is doing and how you're operating in a cohesive manner, it puts you at a disadvantage compared to another company that's doing it. And the other interesting part is if your data layer or your data platform is solidified and you have a clear data strategy, it only lets you go one step at, you know, further to start thinking about machine learning or advanced capabilities in AI that I think are going to be the, the in trend for the next five to 10 years. We're seeing what GPT-3 is doing right now. There's definitely going to be a change in terms of how organizations are going to think about automation to augment what they currently have. And I think data is the fundamental foundation for that. How, other than being smart and <laughs> intelligent and all that good stuff, how did you go from, like, you didn't join as CTO of Workday. You worked your way up no. through the organization, correct? Right. right. How, yes. how did you do that? It's like, pretend I'm somebody you're trying to, like, help. I'm like, I met, I'm, I'm the version of you right when you started at Workday, and you're going to coach that person to help them go farther, become CTO. That's a very interesting question. So I actually joined Workday as a product manager, as I mentioned before. And one of my goals when I joined Workday, and I joined as an associate product manager, so it was the APM program that Workday had. And my goal coming in, which was my goal even at uh, Deutsche, um, at Deutsche, I'd probably reached a point where I really understood the architecture. I understood software development really well. I was a functional specialist for security. But when I moved to Workday, my goal was to learn something new from scratch. So I didn't care about the title. I didn't care about what I was coming in as. My goal was, all right, they're going to give me or help me be part of a rotation program. I'm going to take the most advantage of it. I'm going to understand how every aspect of the product lifecycle works. So on the technology front, I actually worked on different areas. I worked on our core scalability and performance engine. I worked on our search platform to understand how we're thinking about search and how do we index and how do we uh, surface information out? How does the querying work? And then I, of course, you know, held on to my passion. So I did a rotation sort of in security to understand that area, uh, went on to do some integration work and collaboration work in terms of how do you, how do you pretty much engage from a user experience perspective? What are some of the product functionality you build for a recruiter or for somebody who's collaborating within the platform? And that gave me a very solid foundation of how different aspects of the technology stack work. And at that point, I decided, all right, I know how all this works. I know how they're interconnected. I know how the internal systems sort of talk to each other and connect with each other. My next goal was I still love security, and I constantly feel like there are fewer women in cybersecurity than in any other field. And I wanted to go into that. So I actually went in to build our authentication platforms, worked on that for a few years, then started leading the entire security team. That was our identity accounts you know, access management, authentication. And that led me to also get a view into privacy uh, and regulatory requirements across different countries. So it gave me a very global view across different industries on how software services and products are looked at. And I think that was a very valuable thing for me to learn because it gave me an idea of not just the industries that I was very used to, but it also made me think about obscure industries or how you know, factory workers and organizations think about security or how do they actually log into systems? What's mobile usage like? What's desktop usage like? How does Europe think about privacy? 
um, and how, what are technology trends in Asia? So I think it gave me a very, very well-rounded approach and thought process towards everything to do with product, which then helped me sort of elevate myself more to start thinking about security strategy at a higher level for the organization. I also love public speaking and networking a lot. I believe a lot in mentorship and sponsorship. So I'm part of multiple organizations outside and in Workday as well. But that that's basically my growth path. I, I grew myself. I had that horizontal span of understanding the technology stack. I started growing within the security space while having a pulse on how different parts of the organization work. At one point, I actually um, you know went on a mini sabbatical of six months where I handed over securities to someone and went and did a six-month project in another part of the company where I helped ramp up a product from zero to MVP and go live and then came back to doing security. So I've done these mini projects across the board. But I would say the, the biggest thing that I would say to anyone is focus on horizontal growth, focus on understanding how the business works and understanding how the entire technology stack works like, and not just focusing on one area. I love that you said that too, because like for me, I got my start, you know, writing some basic software. Then I got into like some real estate software. And then after real estate, I did some fitness. And then after fitness, I did financial software where like, and I had to completely under get like a 360 perspective of each one of these industries in order to build software that would help move it forward. Right. And so I just got I got in a habit or a pattern of taking really complex ideas, understanding all the different aspects. Now, if you quiz me on this stuff today, <laughs> my memory <laughs> definitely deteriorates. But when you're in there building it uh, and solving the problem, it's it's right. it's super exciting. And so I, I believe that for me, like looking back, those experiences with the business people and the engineers and everyone I got to work with in all of those different uh, projects gave me a really good understanding of the market, like how, how a market works. And so like when you start like getting away, I got away from this idea of like a product and cause that's where I started. I started as an engineer. So it's like product, all you do is build and that's the only thing that matters. <laughs> right. Right. And, and then it got into like this understanding of teams and management and how you can do more by being a good manager, a good leader. And then, then I found something that made me more excited than anything, which was like growing people and solving problems. And then I was like, all right, well, now I'm going to look in my past and see how I can use this toolbox of things I've developed to help me do that at a greater scale. But I want to get to something specific. I want to get to how did you move throughout the organization? Was there a software? Was there a program? Were you just putting in requests? How did you move? So that's interesting. So the, the initial part was a program. So there was a rotational program where you could pretty much sort of decide your course. I was probably the last one to graduate from the program. I would have been completely fine just being rotational, but it helped me build connections across the organization. So I knew people from different parts of the organization because I would have worked on a project or I would have worked in a particular product area. And of course that product area is gonna to touch two other or three other product areas. So I get to know people as part of that process as well. And through one of those, I remember at that time, our uh, one of one of our acquisitions, uh, which was Cape Clear, the the co-founder of Cape Clear actually was leading our European office. That's our Dublin office, and he basically asked me to come and lead this project. So he said, "Hey, I really am struggling to get this off the ground and get this to our customers. We want to talk about this at our partner conference in seven months, and I want you to be the person who actually builds it and talks about it on stage and gives the." keynote presentation on that particular topic. So I, I, again, at that point, I had a team uh, of security folks that were working for me. So I had one of the people take over the things that I was doing from an authentication perspective. And I moved over to the other group. I worked with them for seven months and got that opportunity going and kicked that off and did the presentation he wanted and then came back. But I would say it's all about connections a lot of times. I think once you start building credibility, your work shows for itself and people know, uh, especially if you're taking the, I would say one of the things I did was I constantly talked to people within the organization and what they were working on. I still do that. And I think that's a really important way to keep in touch with everything that's going on and for them to know what your expertise is. And a lot of times I'm just curious. So I'll ask them about something and then I'll give a suggestion or a way to improve what they're doing or an outside-in perspective, 
And I think that makes a lot of difference to how people think about problem spaces or to involve you when they're looking at a situation where they might think that, you know, it's good to bring her in to ask for her opinion. It also goes back to my previous experience. I talked about the first, the second part of my experience with Workday and with Deutsche Bank and stuff. But going back before that, I worked in India. I interned and worked in two different organizations that are both national organizations. I worked for BSNL, which is our telecom provider in India. I also worked for the Indian Railways, uh, working on switching systems and looking at how complicated processes work and how communication happens in those sort of scenarios. And then here I, I worked for AT&T and for a smaller startup called Triangle Biosystems. So I think one of the major aspects of a clearly and consistently working team or company is both communication as well as transparency. And I think those factors play into even you getting opportunities to do things. So if I were to summarize, or I'll let you do it, like if you were to summarize how to move horizontally around a business, it would be like relationships right? Be curious. Start with that. Be curious. Figure out areas that you are interested in. Approach people and just ask them. You might even be able to spend 10% of your time just helping them do something. And eventually that might result in a gig that they might have for you within their organization. And I think companies these days always prefer internal movement to you leaving outside, right? So if you're bored in your job, it's better for you to think about what else is there within your organization. Your company will most likely support it. And, and that's a great way to move and learn. Yeah, I always find advice interesting. Like when people will write, write to me on LinkedIn. and Because I feel like advice is like people asking for advice. Sometimes they're, it depends on what they're asking. But it's almost like step one. It's like step one, you have to like start searching. Step two, you have to like try things and fail. And then step three, you get like angry enough to get it right. <laughs> right. You got to have that like for, for, at least for me subjectively, like I, I get, I try to do things. I'll, I'll, I've, I've gotten to the point now where I figured out the pattern. So it's like, it's really easy. Thank God for like age. Right. But I figured out like how to do difficult things and the pattern, but I always try to look back at what it felt like going through it to try to help other people get to the conclusions faster. Maybe if we can help pass information along down to the next generation, they'll make you know, less of the mistakes and they'll be able to get through the pain quicker. <laughs> no, absolutely. And I think, I think mentorship comes in a lot handy with that as well, because then you're able to you know, bounce your ideas off of someone who's already been there, done that. And then they give you a perspective of, how they would handle the situation. You don't necessarily need to take their ideas and just run with them, but it at least gives you a different perspective from someone who knows you, who's, you know, has your best intentions in mind as they're giving you those suggestions. So for you, have you ever, I'm just curious, uh, have, has a male leader ever come to you and asked for like coaching advice on how to better manage like his female team members? interesting question. I'm thinking about it. I've definitely had people in leadership positions that are men who I coach and I mentor that talk to me in general about leadership. And of course, their team has both men and women. I don't think they've ever specifically asked about women. But one of the things that I proactively do, especially with you know young leaders who are upcoming is I bring them in as allies to a lot of the foundations that I'm part of. So for example, um, I'm part of Women in Cybersecurity. I met Dr. Amber Siraj, who runs the organization. She's a minority woman. And it's, it's probably one of the few security organizations that's global and accepts women from every part. And they're truly committed to the cause of bringing more women into that space. And I usually have my you know, like male mentees who are leaders actually like be part of some of those organizations, or I would tap them to go to Grace Hopper with me. Because I think those are the ways in which you can make people think about gender diversity or uh, mentorship or coaching or different aspects when it comes to men or women. But I've never had anybody who has explicitly come and asked me the question of how should I think about managing a woman? No. Yeah, I was just so you know, I saw that you were part of some of the women's groups and you've got some content out there on that. And so I was trying to, I always try to, to figure out like, 
you know, what's something unique we could talk about that, that, you know, would benefit the audience. Right. And yeah. I had put stuff out in newsletters and people were saying, you know, there's a lot more uh, women on their teams nowadays. And that brought up this conversation of like, I wonder if, if, there's like talking points. So I actually went and tried to find a book on it. I tried to find a book on like men managing women in the workplace. And the only thing I found was the author of Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. Did Venus. Not, yeah, he, <laughs> he did, or she, I don't remember. But that author did a like, I saw it on Amazon, like a 30 minute audio cassette you had to buy. Like it was old, right? So I'd like have to buy the cassette and listen to it. Right. But, and it was like, it was the same title of the book, but like slash in the workplace. And I was like, well, so there's not, like I couldn't find any any books on on this. But if I think about it, like if I step back, what I've, what I've learned like, you know, myself growing these teams is that I start to see people, like I'm really, I noticed that my mind like I'm very, I'm self-aware in a sense, right? Like I notice my mind doesn't seem to care about gender or race. My mind seems to care about the styles of how people think because that is directly correlated to the work they produce and their attitude regardless of, you know, uh, sex or race. So I just, I've just kind of developed this sense of the only thing I really care about is figuring out how the person thinks and whether or not I need that style of thinking for a specific role at a specific time. And so that that's kind of the pattern I found myself in. But maybe that's why maybe that maybe some of these managers or these these leaders that you're working around, maybe they've kind of instinctively done the same thing where they just are trying to figure out how the people think and then treat them or or leverage their abilities based off of their style of thinking. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting point that you bring up. I always say that it's it's not just about hiring people with diverse opinions in the team, but it's about making them feel like they belong to the group. And I think that's an aspect that a lot of people don't think about. There's probably one woman on the team, or there's one person of color on the team, or, you know, the, the, and then the conversations that happen around that person, even within a team setting or a team meeting setting matters a lot because you want to be inclusive in terms of how you engage in those conversations or the topics that you talk about. And I think that is something that a lot of leaders need to be very cognizant of within their team is how do you, how do you, how does your conversation, like the first five minutes of your team meeting, how do you, what topics do you talk about? And how much do you see engagement from everyone in the group when you're having those discussions? And sometimes people just don't think about it. It's a, it's a chit chat for two minutes and then beyond that, everyone's just back to their jobs. But the way you make people feel included is being part of conversations that everyone can be you know, excited about and can contribute to. And similarly, as the leader, I think it's perfectly fine to be empathetic to all groups in your organization or within your team. You don't need to do anything specific for that. You don't need to treat a woman different from a man. You just need to make sure that everyone's treating everyone equally. And that's your responsibility as a leader. You might be doing it, but maybe there are people within your team that are not. So I think those are the biases that I would look for in general. And I would ask people to look for is, are you treating everyone the same? Do they all get the same opportunities? Do they all feel the same way about working for you? And I think those are things that every leader should be thinking about. Yeah, I, I fully agree. You know, I was, so my mom's best friend, her name's Debbie, and she's a very successful business owner uh, out in Las Vegas. Owns like a large uh, furniture company, and okay. and so growing up, she was at our house like every six months. She would like stay with us for a week, right? And uh, so I got to watch her growing up, and I got to hear her talking about like sexism because she was building a business from nothing in Las Vegas in the eighties, right. right? So. <laughs> People say that like text mail dominated, but like casino bosses and stuff like that. And you're trying to sell stuff. They were like some bad stories. But in my experience, I had like never seen that. And so like, as I went from like, you know, 12, 15, 18, 20, 30, like I just had like, I've never ran into a, another male that was like that. I'd never experienced it in my entire life. And I began to like, think that it's not true, right? And then one day <laughs> it happened <laughs> and I'll tell you what, like I tore into that individual uh, because 
I mean, it, for me to have, you know, that much of experience and never encountered it, it's, I believe that they're very much the minority. Like it's very rare, at least in my subjective experience, I did not run into many of these people, but when I did, I certainly like, and because it was just like so blatant, like what they were doing. And I was just like this, you can't do that. Like, you just can't do it. Like you can like, you know, maybe make a joke, but like you can't actually not give the opportunity. <laughs> you know what yeah. I'm saying? Uh, because like guys, I mean, like, you know, with me and, and, and my team and we have guys and girls, we're, we're like a 50, 50 split right now. We're small. We're like 10 people, but I, I celebrate with everybody equally. I make fun of everybody equally. We have our own unique culture and like, you know, it's just, it's who, it's just how we, it's just our behavior, like how we, our culture, right? Right. I know I'm being a little bit ambiguous, but I was just surprised that, that some of that stuff did exist. And I think that there's an overwhelmingly large amount of good people. And I think that it's become okay for the good people to correct the bad people as far as this like equality issue. But I, I still tend to lean towards like one thing I do struggle with, which you might be able to uh, open my eyes a little bit on is like, okay, here's a scenario. So let's say we have person A and person B, right? right. And they're equally qualified and person A came first, right? But I'm going, but so I have those two people, person A came first, they're, everything is equal about them mm -hmm. quality with the exception of their you know, skin color or gender. For me, like not to pick the first person because of an attribute, which is like otherwise irrelevant. And I might back that statement up because it sounds bad when I say it out loud. But <laughs> for me to pick the person, like if I have two equally qualified people and the first person, I, I would go like first come first serve based off of skill and need. I wouldn't like say, I'm not going to hire that person because I want this other color or this other gender on my team. Like, I feel like, I feel like it's wrong. I feel like that's racist and sexist. Like, I feel like that's the wrong thing to do. The right thing to do is the most qualified person, first come, first serve basis based on the need and how they, they think and the work that they can perform and put that individual in. I mean, do you, do you see like how I feel it's wrong? Can you help? coach me or guide me <laughs> that's an interesting theoretical problem to have so it's it's i feel like a lot of times when you think about you know both of them are extremely equally competent to do the job um i usually tell people just think a little beyond especially if you're in a situation like this where you you absolutely for some reason feel like they're they're both great they're both going to fit the description of the job maybe think a little bit beyond to see who's going to fit that next job, who's more coachable, who is, who is going to potentially be, you know, able to leave this particular role you're giving them to move into newer responsibilities or bigger responsibilities in the future. Um, when you add a couple more parameters, it becomes a little bit more apparent, even, even culture fit. I think that's something that a lot of people have one interview on and then don't worry about it too much. Um, there's also the aspect around, you, you know, true, diversity within organizations. Like if, if your organization is fully comprised of, you know, white men, and then you have these two equally qualified people and the first person who came in is not a person of color, but the second person who came in is a person of color, they're both equally qualified. Like all of these factors sort of influence your decision-making and they might change the parameters because the control setup that we have could change based on these extra parameters we haven't even thought about, right? So I would always say put that in perspective versus just comparing these two people, compare them with the environment, compare with them, them with the scenario, compare them with what you're optimizing for. And then the decision becomes a little bit more easier. And if you're, if, if the qualifications match, I always back myself up on culture fit. I back myself up on potential to grow, potential to get them into leadership roles, or even, you know, how is, how does my team look today? Because that is, an extra parameter for the qualification for the job. Because if you're looking for diverse opinions and you wanna make sure that you have people with different backgrounds be part of your team, then that completely changes the decision-making as well. So it's not as easy as like having two people with equal qualifications. It's how, did, how does that fit in with the larger picture of the organization, the company and where you guys wanna go? Yeah, so I always like to use the rainforest 
um, <laughs> just like the rainforest, the reason why it's so successful and its uh, ability to maintain itself is due to its diversity, right? There yep. are so many thousands exactly. of species of everything. And so it's like a really, I tend to think like decentralized systems are very stable. Those are diverse and in one regard. I think diverse decoupled systems tend to be more stable if they're designed properly. And then diversity in general is like a good thing. It's just, you know, I, I don't know how to talk about some things. And so I feel like I have two options. I can either like shy away from them and like not talk about them at all or try to like solve this like angst that I have in understanding yeah. because like I was thinking about it on my run the other day and I was like, division like the more you divide the more division there will be right absolutely yeah yeah Yeah. but at the same time like you need unity right right (laughs) Right? and so it's like if i were to look just like thought experiments it's like okay let's look at this thought as, as like divisive and like what is the unitive thought if that's a word right so i was thinking like is there like language or a way to talk to solve the problem of diversity without saying we need this many people of this color (laughs) no absolutely yeah how do we solve that and don't the, the thing i tell people is the goal is not to lower the bar the goal is to be able to bring in as many people of color to at least have the opportunity to interview for the job and i think those are very different things and i i going back to one of the things you said like how do we talk about this? It's it's important to bring up these questions and talk about these questions. I think when this this whole you know racial injustice thing came about a couple of months ago, people were worried about talking about it sometimes, even within companies, and they didn't know how to address it. They didn't know whether they could ask their dumb questions, whether they could, you know, ask questions and get answers for those. They didn't know whether they could approach people and say, Hey, I'm I I'm here for you. Is that okay? Is that not okay? And I think one of the major things that we all need to do is be open to ask those questions, get those solved, because that is the first step towards solving problems. And that's what's going to bring about that unification that you talked about, is if we all sit together and figure out a mechanism through which we can actually make a change or a difference in the world. So even within Workday, we we had a huge sort of you know uh, channel to talk about Black Lives Matter and everything that's happening around the movement. We we had powerful town halls that our CEO and the entire executive team like came together and hosted. We have Slack channels where people constantly talk about diversity and mechanisms through which we can improve things. But one of the things that we've done is over the next year, we're bringing together people from different parts of the organization as part of an accelerator program that's going to think about the exact question that you asked about. Like, how do we creatively solve the problem of diversity because the, the answer is not lower the bar. The answer is not have a checklist of number of people who are coming in, but it needs to be more fundamental than that. How are we going to solve that for the longer run rather than for the short-term success? And a lot of times you might even see this within some parts of the organization, we're very good at making that change. But if you look at other parts of the organization, they predominantly tend to be very you know, homogeneous in their setup. So I think there is there is a lot for different companies to think about. There's no one single answer for it, but I think the beginning of all of this is around even having a conversation about it, acknowledging the problem, coming together as a group of diverse set of people and making sure that there is a path towards where you want to be in the next five years. Not just saying I care about diversity and inclusion, so I'm going to have a head of diversity and inclusion, but going deeper than that and saying it's not just that teams choice and work to think about diversity, but how are we as a company across different organizations within the company coming together to solve this problem for each one of us? So it's just like a product problem, right? And this is much more fundamental than that because this is a people problem and a culture problem. Um, And if we are going to build good products, the foundations of that needs to come with good people. Yeah. And our it's like where do your people come from? Well they come from your communities, right? Right. And yeah, I, so I grew up poor, and like, there's also there's like different levels of poor, but like f- enough to be on food stamps, right? And then my parents ended up doing better, and you know, becoming better at their craft and progressing, and and so on and so forth. And we got out of that, like as I got into like high school time, but it was 
I so I always think about like the community and and I, what it comes down to for me is like if I were to visit my past self, it would be about education, and I would almost definitely give myself right. advice on go explore the personal development space. Most, you know, a lot of people, everyone will have an opinion on it, but just go explore it because doing difficult things and learning how yourself works is like the foundation of how you're going to get ahead in life. Right. And so I, I feel like if we could just amplify that message to communities, (laughs) right. And just make it like, we should make it, um, hard, harder to, to not know the information. Like I see like some sides, like, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's like, well, yeah, I agree with that. But at the same time, you have to have the knowledge like that you have boots and they have straps and that you can pull them up. Like you, you have to have some basic business knowledge. You have to have some like basic understanding how the market works. You have to understand like your own personal finance. Like there's a lot of these things and we have this beautiful existing educational system. We just need to, I think, pump it full of better content, right? Yeah. And I, I think there's an interesting aspect to this. I feel like technology is actually helping us move in that direction. People who didn't know what investing was or didn't even think about investing on their own are now using apps like Robinhood. People who are not thinking about like no one, like a lot of people don't understand Bitcoins or blockchain. They're using Coinbase. We're seeing a change in terms of how people are managing their finances. Companies like Wealthfront, or companies like Betterment are making it possible for folks to start thinking about their personal investment and finances. You know, YouTube and other content providers are giving information on courses and, you know, knowledge bases that people can use to sort of improve themselves. Um, And one of the areas that we're focusing on is even reskilling people that are currently in the workforce. How do we use machine learning and techniques to say, People in your job, listen to these four learning videos. You should go and listen to them. Hey, looks like you just got promoted to being a manager. Here are five resources you should know about managing your team. Those recommendations that you can give people that's point in time enhance their experiences. And we're so used to it in our regular life with Netflix or with YouTube or other forums. And I think even bringing that back into the enterprise space changes how even folks that are currently in the workforce but are looking to reskill themselves to change how they work or you know even understand what their career path looks like a lot of times no one's telling anyone where do they go next but if they have a me- mechanism to sort of go in and see people in your role went to these four different positions that gives you an idea of what your career path or trajectory could look like without having your manager or somebody tell you about it right so i think there is power in technology and systems that we just need to channel and leverage in the right format to better both our society, community, as well as outlook within organizations, because that's all a cycle. How your people and companies think is what's going to dictate how they bring other people into the fold as well. So I think you bring up a great point around the community value and the system around education being the the force behind how people are going to change in the next few years. Yeah, because, you know, 50 years ago, the best professor at whatever university would interact with their students and maybe write a book, which would be then distributed wherever. But now, like, we're getting close to the point where we're going to have, like, 3D versions, like living replicas of how people think and their styles and their, and we're going to be able to interact with them. And when we can, when it becomes so cheap, which is beautiful, right? How the education is becoming cheaper, then we can distribute it wider. Right. And then it'll be, I think it'll be a lot like nerds, how like it wasn't cool at first and then it became cool. (laughs) (laughs) No, information proliferation is where we're at right now. And if we're not able to channel that and use that in the right way, that's going to be hard. As you said, we're thinking about how we can download our memories and yes. keep them stored for the future. When we're doing that, like we know storage is cheap. We know that technology enables us to provide platforms or mechanisms through which people can consume content. The next step in the game is how do you incentivize people to make use of that? What is that path that you can actually show them? I was actually part of the Spark Mentorship Program in the Bay Area. Um, And this was aimed at schools in Oakland and other areas. These were middle school kids. And the goal was to make sure they don't drop out. And the way we would do that is basically we would bring them to work 
to show them what different roles are like, what it's like to work in a corporate environment, what does the future hold for them, what could their future look like, and also sort of work on a project with them as we're going through this. But that program sort of allows them to, you know, look at the possibility that's there in front of them and the opportunities that they could be part of. And I think that's part of this whole circle, like programs like Europe or programs that allow, you know, moms that have taken a break to come back to work or, you know, military veterans to come and work in the corporate workforce with skills that are required for them to be able to join. I think all of those are programs that all companies should be looking at. We've invested in it for a few years now and it's paid huge benefits. And I think that's the way companies can start building social good is think about the population that is not, you know, able to find jobs and then figure out what the program or the structure is to help them get the skills required for them to be successful. Yeah, I, I remember I was in Tennessee and this company was like blowing up. I was giving like a talk at like their tech council, Tennessee tech council or something. And yeah. in the building, this company was like exploding. And, and what they did was they took people out of the service industry in Nashville and trained them to be like product managers or engineers. And they did it with like money from the city. And then they got paid by the company like for a placement. So they financed it with like city money, got paid. And they were just like, we're, we have to move out. We have, we need a bigger building. Like hundred yeah. people are just moving like crazy because they're, you know what the difference was? Because these programs had existed for a long time. They started, they started treating it like a business and advertising it so right. that the bartender would be sitting there on going through Instagram and see the, you know, you want to make $70,000 a year as a product manager, boom, click here. And then it's going to be free. And then you're going to come to our thing. And, you know, there was requirements and all of that good stuff. But um, the fact that like, I call it like transfusion, like we're, we're actively seeking to like, how can we improve and grow and then like, I just saw the other day, Google release these certificates that they're doing. I know they have like Google certificates have been around for a while, but what they were, were um, they were like these six month programs and they're going to treat them when hiring at Google equal to a college degree. So like, if you have one of these six month programs, like for data science and you're applying at Google for data science, then they will respect that education. And for me, that's unbelievable. It's like, we're removing... It's like college was the middleman that so many of our multi-sided marketplaces like got rid of, <laughs> right? It's like, we're getting to that point where it's just based off of your skill and the skills are changing Absolutely. so fast. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the one thing that we've realized even through our research in the past few years is skills are the new currency. And that's why going back to the horizontal growth, the reason why the focus on horizontal growth matters is because what you gain from that horizontal growth or engaging yourself in these multiple areas is skills, right? And those skills become really important as you start functioning in society. I think, sure, a college degree in computer science or electrical engineering might matter, but if you're applying for a machine learning job, a Coursera course that's just focused on machine learning from Stanford or other organizations for a fraction of the cost would serve you better. And you could have a project or something associated with it where you show that expertise and demonstrate that you actually have expertise in that. They issue you with a certificate or a digital credential that can then be accepted by other organizations. So I feel like the, the roadblocks are being removed little by little. There's still a long way to go. But I think those skills sort of come in handy a lot of times when people are applying for jobs. Even if you look at veterans, the, the discipline they bring into the role, the, the organization skills that they typically have, the leadership skills that they have in terms of, you know, either, uh, you know, looking at orders coming in and executing on those orders or being able to give orders to people from a military perspective, sort of translating over to how they would manage um, and work in companies. They're great folks to work with, but I think giving them that opportunity and allowing them to translate those skills that they learned and gained over there into tangible things that we can use in every workplace is is a huge advantage. Yeah, and there goes your mind again, thinking about like, how do we best use our resources, right? I right. love it. Was there anything that, that we wanted to, to discuss that, because we've got about seven minutes left and I wanted to make sure that we respect your hard stop, but I also, like, did you have any topics that you wanted to talk about that we didn't cover? I think the one interesting thing as it was, thinking through this is I was, I was back basically thinking back at my 
life and my work this weekend. Um, and I was thinking about what skills have made me successful, or if I went back to hone a few more skills, what would those be? And it takes me back to my childhood. So I, I used to sing as a kid, and my parents always shoved me up on stage, and they would make me sing to an audience of X number of people, right? And I would do that. And so I never had stage fright. And that translated over to my job, where I'm able to speak to a large audience without worrying or having anxiety. Similarly, you know, I was, I was part of debate clubs in school where we would pick a topic and we would basically block and tackle and like talk about both sides of the story and how things work. And if I think about leadership roles and where I am today, a lot of times the decisions that we're making are around, the job itself is around decision-making, I would say, right? Like you're presented with a few options and in a very short period of time, you need to make up your mind based on the opinions and options that are on the table. And that skill is, was developed from that extracurricular activity that I took on earlier in my life. And the same thing with playing chess and having that focus on things that I really wanted to do. I feel like a lot of times when we think about education and about studying, people think about subjects, people think about these, you know, complex structures around maths or English or social science, but they don't think about those softer skills that they're learning that sometimes end up being the ceiling for people's growth. A lot of people are not good speakers or not good public speakers. And that puts a ceiling on their growth a lot of times because that's required in certain jobs. A lot of people are not good at working under pressure and taking decisions based on quick information that they get. And that again is a detriment to a lot of people. So I think one of the aspects that I would tell even to folks that are younger in their career is, focus on some of these skills that are going to come and help you later in your life because expertise, domain expertise skills and all this around your job, you're going to learn over a period of time. But those skills are things that you have to grow and nurture over a period of time. So I think that's an important aspect to keep in mind. And mentors and sponsors can help you with that. Like if you have mentors for specific things, if you see someone who's a great public speaker, go to them for that skill. You don't need to have a mentor that is all encompassing. It, you don't need to have a mentor that's from your own space. It's actually nice to have a variety of people in different areas mentor and coach you. Yeah, and you also don't need to ask them to be the mentor. It's something I, I found out. Like you, if you come with a, I found out this like, I call it a hack. Like 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 if you have a good enough question and you send it to like a famous author and like the question itself is like good enough, they can tell how much time you've spent in the area or what you're struggling with based on the question. And then they'll respect the question. They'll like respond to you often. And so I, I, it's, there's just so many people that want the easy stuff. Right. And then yeah. uh, I was one of those people and then I wanted the easy stuff and I kept trying easy ways. And this was like, you know, a long time ago. And then I just got so frustrated with not getting the results I want. I'm like, Oh, just like, let me go study successful people. And so I started buying all their books and like reading and, and trying to understand like how they think. And that is something that I believe a lot of humans have that ability. Like you can read something and understand the, how the author would think about other topics, right? Absolutely. And I think that's a great way to get mentors is what is on top of mind? Who's the best person to answer that question? And People are in general very helpful. No one wants to just blow people off. I think a blank email that says, can I get 30 minutes of your time is probably not going to have a response from me, but an email that says, hey, I listened to this particular podcast of yours and I wanted to discuss a little bit more about strategies around managing women. And of course, I'm going to respond back and say, happy to take 30 minutes, feel free to find time. So I think that's very important is context is key. And having curiosity around topics and figuring out the right people to answer your questions can go a long way. And then last question as we wrap up, what are you like really excited about in your life? Like long-term goals, you mentioned five-year plans. I happen to plan my life in five-year plans. I'm actually eight months into my second five-year plan. But what, what's like coming up for you? What are you excited about, whether it's personal or professional? Like what big goals are you coming up on? Yeah, I think for me, I'm, I'm at a stage where I'm thinking more and more about impact and giving back and both education as well as mentorship and leadership stand out for me. So I'm actually a founding member of 
Netri, which is a South Asian women foundation where we focus on helping and mentoring and growing uh, South Asian women leaders. I'm part of, you know, educational startups and NGOs that are trying to change the way in which education and the industry works across the world. For me, I would say the next five years are all about impact, giving back, figuring out ways to build more leaders that are empathetic in the world, and also thinking about how we can use technology to solve some of these complex problems that are going to arise over a period of time, especially in the enterprise space. In HR and financials, there is a huge opportunity to unify fragmented systems and make it better for companies to understand and analyze the business. And if you look about look at other areas, there is a huge opportunity in general to bring up people, help them grow, help them be better. And our education industry, for example, has, has so much that can be changed to both impact teachers, tutors, as well as students. Boom, we nailed it. We did it. We, we made a podcast. How do you feel? That's awesome. That was easy. <laughs> it was so good talking with you. It's, it's three o'clock now, so I want to be respectful of your time, but I'm going to put you on the list to like come back next year and we can catch up and see what else is going on, what, what you've learned that's new, and we can keep having you on every once in a while. Is that okay with you? Absolutely. And we got to get together and write that book that you were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Have a wonderful afternoon. You too. Take care. Thank Bye. You. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.